Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. When it came down to it, no one was willing to risk any sort of scandal when she needed her powerful friends, you know, in life and then in death, they were covering their own butts. Marjorie Norville was a mould breaker. In the 1930s, she was a single, gregarious career woman living in a hotel in Brisbane's CBD. She worked for Premier William Forgan Smith and his wife. Although his premiership took in both the Great Depression and World War II, 
Morgan Smith was very popular and became the longest serving Premier in Queensland's history at the time. Her membership to the Premier's inner circle provided Marjorie with a lifestyle that was out of reach for most women in conservative Queensland at the time. But it all came to an abrupt end when she disappeared without a trace one sunny day in 1938. None of Marjorie's high-profile male companions had any idea as to where she could be or what could have happened to her. The chief of Queensland's police at the time has since become a legend himself for all the wrong reasons. Historian and author Michael Adams from the podcast Forgotten Australia joins us with the disturbing story of Marjorie Norville, the trailblazing Queensland woman who some suspect flew too close to the sun. Well, Marjorie Norville was a woman who was ahead of her time in many respects. I mean, in the 1920s, when she was in her 20s, when most women didn't have jobs, or if they had jobs, you know, they were shop girls or something like that, and then they'd, you know, get married and quit, she was actually a rising public servant. Now, when she was just out of school in 1924, she ranked 18th in the Queensland public service exams. So, you know, that's overall. That was quite the achievement back in the day. So her official job title was typist in the education department when she started out, but she quickly rose through the ranks and became sort of a a secretary slash social secretary, sort of, you know, Jill of all trades to various really important uh, figures in Queensland's government. Marjorie is also ahead of her time and she was, I guess we'd call her a liberated woman if we were, you know, having this podcast discussion in the 1970s. She was an attractive woman. She was smart. She was stylish. And, you know, she smoked, she drank, she played golf, she drove a, <laughs> a, a nice little sports car. I mean, if you think of sort of, you know, the roaring 20s or, you know, the sort of movies of Hollywood of the 1930s with these sort of, you know, Catherine Hepburn style women, she probably fit the bill to some extent. So she was really wow. unusual for the time. In terms of her love life, again, ahead of her time, while, you know, her peers were getting engaged, getting married. She was uh, having fun with gentlemen who she liked. Typically, they were older. I think three of them were widowers. One guy was married, and all of this would become you know, the subject of intrigue later on. And in terms of her professional life, I mean, you know, she worked for the Education Department, the Justice Department, the Department of Lands, and then in October 1932, she transferred to the Premier's department. So this was the, the new Premier, William Forgan Smith, who was a Labor guy. And you know when he was interstate or abroad, his deputy Percy Pease would take over as acting Premier. So she worked for, for both of these guys, and she actually would also socialise with them. So she went on holidays with you know, Percy Pease and his family to the Gold Coast, and she became like you know, the sort of social secretary to Premier Forgan Smith's wife, Euphemia. I mean, if you can't have fun with a bloke called Percy Pease, then you're just at the Gold Coast in the 30s. I mean, you're just not trying. They would have had a monster mash with peas. Oh, I love it. I love everything about this lady's life. Do you know anything about her family and how she was raised? Like, where does she come from? You'd sort of expect a woman like this would have been raised in some sort of privilege, but the reverse was true. She was born in March 1908. Um, She was one of five children. Her father worked as a wharf labourer. And he was a prominent unionist. So, you know, they were modest, working to middle, lower middle class. They lived in uh, West End in Brisbane. She was a good student. She went to state school. She did her uh, music exams. 
But she also had uh, a bit of tragedy in her life. Her father died in 1933. And in 1935, her mother's mental state deteriorated to the extent that she was institutionalized. And it created this incredibly bitter rift in the family. Marjorie would never speak to her mother again. It's possible that Marjorie saw the Premier's wife, Mrs. Forgan Smith, as something of a mother figure, and they spent an awful lot of time together. So Marjorie would be reported in newspapers such as The Truth, you know, going, you know, here, there, and everywhere with Mrs. Forgan Smith. I mean, when she went on a six week tour of northern Queensland, you know, the far north, she took Marjorie with her. And Truth was, you know, saying, well, she'll be accompanied by Marjorie Norville from the Premier's office. Lucky Marjorie. And, you know, I guess in the 1930s, a lot of women would have been reading this in the social pages and going, wow, I'd like to live this life. Um, shortly after, Marjorie went with the deputy premier, our mate, Percy Pease, down to Sydney for, for two weeks with, you know, him and his wife. At her Kangaroo Point flat, she'd entertain people, bridge evenings. It was all beautifully decorated, lots of flowers. You know, again, this is all in the social pages. So she was really living the life. In 1937, Marjorie and her best friend, Masia Doran, moved into the Albert Hotel. So that's right on King George's Square in the city, next to the Tivoli Theatre. And, um, you know, they were in the thick of things then. So they, together, Marjorie and Mercia, went on holidays again with Mrs. Forgan Smith. And um, at one of these parties, she met a guy called Jack Caton. Now, he was a widower and he was a representative for the Ford Motor Company. Complicating matters was the fact that, you know, for the past decade or so, Marjorie had been seeing this guy called James East, also a widower. They were kind of, you know, casual, at least from her point of view. So she was apparently seeing both of these guys at the same time on a fairly casual basis. And then in mid-1938, Marjorie and Jack Caton went their separate ways. He would later say that she'd sent him a letter saying she had strong feelings for another man. But Marjorie told her sister she'd broken it off because Jack wasn't, quote, honest. At this time, she was also friendly with a guy called Dr. Peter English, yet another widower. Then there was a guy called John Carey. He was a shop assistant. He was younger than her usual beaus, but he was married. There was a guy called Albert Townsend from Canberra who worked with the customs service. He was 20 years older than Marjorie, also married. And most intriguingly of all, another rumoured lover was George Pollock. He was a veteran politician and speaker of the Legislative Assembly. So he and his wife had been uh, separated, although they were still married, for 15 years he was 20 years older than Marjorie. So there's all of these guys sort of, you know, rumored to be her lovers or actually her lovers, all of them to a man denied they'd ever been intimate with Marjorie. They were all oh. just friends, of course. Of course. Um, but also yeah. it's not surprising, you know, to, to use sort of very um, basic psychology, pop psychology, you know, for a woman who'd lost her dad very early in her life, that often can lead to women being interested in older men, can't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And also, yeah. like, you know, she was these were the people she was working with. Yeah. Um, you know, this was her scene, you know, if she's talking about, you know, in 1934 when she was Percy Pease was uh, acting premier, he invited her into the Loans Council and there'd never been a woman enter the Loans Council before and she was the youngest person ever to, to step foot in the chamber. And she told the papers, you know, I'm thrilled to bits. So you can kind of imagine, you know, if she's playing golf or having a drink or a smoke or whatever, mm. you know, chatting to men her own age, these guys, you know, were, I guess, more worldly, more powerful, et cetera. But at least her employers took her seriously, clearly, you know, they didn't treat her like a, a bimbo, certainly. No, they didn't. But, uh, 
you know, the thing was in mid-August 1938, uh, she started to feel sick in the mornings. She went on holidays with her friend, Monsieur Doran, and she was complaining of being sick each morning. She came back to Brisbane around about the middle of October. And, you know, she was, as I said, she was often going out and was noted in the social papers. But at this time, at this period, she kind of disappeared from the scene. So it seems, you know, fairly evident that she was pregnant. And, you know, a pregnancy could ruin any of these men, you know, even the guys who were widowers, it would be a scandal. So while they treated her seriously, they weren't, I don't think, particularly protective of her. No, I'd say that was probably her uh, problem to deal with, right? So what, she and Mercia go on a little holiday together, did they? They went on a holiday to South Australia. They went on a cruise. Before they went, Marjorie got a, a prescription from Dr. Peter English, one of her quote-unquote friends, for seasickness tablets, supposedly. Later, it would be found that she had a bottle of tablets which were used at the time. They can, contained things like strychnine and quinine which were used to try to induce abortions. And there was 30 tablets in the bottle, or had been, and only three of them were left. So it would seem that she had been trying to terminate the pregnancy herself uh, to no avail. What a painful, painful process that would have been. I'm just imagining the cramping and the what, what that would put your body through. Awful. I mean, Awful. and this is the thing with, you know, the resurgence of anti-abortion legislation oh, yeah. in the United yeah. States. You know, if you look through Australian history, uh, you'll just see this litany of women who are forced to go to get an abortion in illicit circumstances, you know, kitchen table abortions. They might be carried out by an actual doctor, but the circumstances are so sort of, you know, primitive that Blood poisoning often results and people die. And then, you know, the abortionist then has to actually dispose of the body. Otherwise, he's going to be charged with murder. So um, Marjorie, in the middle of October, started telling all of these strange, strange stories about what she was about to do. She said she was going to visit an aunt in Bundaberg. She said she was going on a secret mission for the premier. She said she was doing a bit of detective work for her department. She sort of gave all of these different stories about what she was about to do. In any event, on the 11th of November, 1938, her longtime sort of boyfriend, James East, picked her up at her hotel and took her to the station. He supposedly didn't ask where she was going, which to me is extraordinary. I mean, who gives anyone a lift to the station and says, bye, as opposed to where are you off to? Further, it was 400 yards from her hotel to Brisbane Central Station. And she was only carrying a small attache case in which she'd only packed sort of pyjamas and, you know, toiletries. So she was going away for a few days, but she wasn't going to be doing anything, it seems, except being in bed, given what she had packed. So she went to the station and at seven o'clock said goodbye to this James East guy, and she was never seen again. She just vanished from the face of the earth. Now, before she'd left, she'd you know, applied for this you know, leave and said she'd be back in a few days from the department. She withdrew about 50 pounds from her uh, bank account, adjusted for inflation. That's about four and a half grand today. Would have been wow. about three months of her salary. So wherever she was going, she needed a bit of money. Yeah, okay. Maybe to pay for something. You would think this is the case, yeah. 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 So she seemed to be in high spirits. You know, She said to this James East guy, as she got out of his car, don't wait till the train goes, go and play bridge. That was what he did each Friday night. She said, I'll see you on Thursday. Don't forget the tickets. 
And that was in reference to a show they'd planned to see the next week. Of course, for that, the only version of that story we have is his. So that's supposedly what happened. So six days later, Thursday, the 16th of November, she still hadn't come back to work. There was a function that night for the Premier's wife and, and you know, Marjorie organised everything. She just didn't show. So they uh, contacted the cops and the Brisbane's CIB at this time was headed by a guy called Alf Jessen. And the, the police, the CIB had just recently been criticised in Parliament for exerting political control over operations on behalf of the government. So here's a woman who's you know, connected at the highest level with all of the movers and shakers politically, and she's vanished. So you can imagine just you know, how sensitively this was going to be treated. So they went to her hotel room and with her friend Messiah's assistance, deduced that she'd only taken the very minimum of clothing we discussed. Messiah told them that you know, she'd had stomach trouble in the mornings the past couple of months. They found the tablets. So they deduced that she, A, had been pregnant and B, had possibly gone to try and procure an abortion. In the hotel room, they also found uh, a torn up letter from that public servant guy, Albert Townsend, down in Canberra. And in the letter, he called, you know, he signed off for yours ever, Albert. He also said, I've always been happy with you. Are you quite well again, dear? You know, when he was questioned, he said, as a married man, of course, we were just friends. All we talked about was, you know, respective illnesses because he was quite crook as well and politics. So the police then, you know, interviewed James East, Masia Doran, the hotel keeper, and they found out, you know, all of these various stories she'd been saying. I'm going to visit an aunt in Bundaberg. I'm going to Southport. I'm doing detective work. So all of these different stories are absolutely bewildering. She could have just said, I'm going away for you know, a few days because she was off and off on holidays anyway. It's strange see, she felt it necessary to sort of create this web of intrigue. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Were there any other witnesses at all to her being picked up by him or dropped off by him or to her even being at the station? No, that's it. Like, you know, she was well known. Uh, She was often traveling. So she knew a lot of railway workers. No one had seen her buy a ticket. No one had seen her on a train. It turned out that the entrance she went into was going in the wrong direction for her supposed destination in Bundaberg. And and James East claimed to have not traveled on a train for a long time and didn't know this. There was also no train to Bundaberg until nine o'clock. So she'd gotten there supposedly two hours earlier. So James East was interviewed every day. Again, he, he said to them, she did not mention Bundaberg. She made no mention of her destination. Now, what's, again, extraordinary is, you know, this woman's gone missing. We all know that, you know, the first sort of two days or so are crucial in these sort of cases. You want people to come forward when their memories are fresh. So the police didn't make an announcement for another three days after she was reported missing on the 16th. And then it wasn't, wasn't until the 22nd of November, 11 days after she was last seen, that it made the front page. So it had almost been two weeks before the public at large knew that she was gone. And she's famous. And she's, you know, yeah, relatively speaking, she's yeah. well known. Because Brisbane, and then this is one of those moments where I can fill in a little gap for you. <laughs> yeah. There aren't famous people in Brisbane. No. Like Even now, there's the Brisbane Broncos and there's the lady <laughs> on the news. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, and so, it, in 1938, you know, it would have been even, you know. What, even Broncos? <laughs> that's right. So the, the police, like they searched holiday resorts, hospitals, lodging houses, hotels. By the end of the week, you know, it had taken them a while to get going. It was the biggest search in the state's history. I mean, the fact that she just vanished like this, they immediately suspected foul play. The very best they could hope for was that she was sick somewhere or that she had amnesia. They posted a reward of 500 pounds. I mean, it's about 50 grand these days adjusted for inflation, but a better measure is you could have bought an, a house outright back then for that amount. They interviewed like 800 taxi drivers thinking that she might've got out for James East car at the station and then gotten into a a taxi. They searched all around Redcliffe and Sandgate. Six mounted police covered 5,000 acres in those first few days, you know. So they're the beachside suburbs up up north, like sort of on the edge of town. I used to live in Redcliffe, actually. That's right. So in those days, they were like, out of town, weren't they? Yeah. So what did they search up there for, do you think? Did they, well, they think? I think they, they were thinking her body had been dumped somewhere and this is yeah. likely where it would be. So, you know, the cops, the horses are sink, sinking into swamps. There's mozzies. It's really hard going. On the 29th of November, thousands of Brisbane people came together to search everywhere for her unofficially. And that same day, the RAAF volunteered a seaplane. So I want to name these guys, Flight Officer Max Weiber, and his two crewmates, aircraft officers, Albert Milner and Eric Everett. And they were joined by a young Queensland Water Police constable named George Young. And the newspaper photographers were there snapping Constable Young as he's climbing up into the plane. He says, should be all right. These Air Force boys know how to handle their planes. So they took off in this amphibian plane. They have to fly low because, you know, they're looking on the banks of the Albert River to see if they can see anything in the mangroves or on the shores and so forth. So low as they pass locals, they can actually wave to them. At 12.40, there'd been high tension lines across the river and the plane's wing clips one of these. The wire snaps, wraps itself around the wing and is sparking into the into the river below, pulling the plane down. The plane crashes and burns and all four men are killed. No. Yeah. So whoever, oh whoever had done whatever they'd done to Marjorie and not come forward about it now had... Well, in my opinion, the deaths of four men on their consciences. Yeah. 
So they couldn't find her. They couldn't find a body. They couldn't hold an inquest because under Queensland law at that time, they needed a body. The investigations continued. They put out 10,000 missing persons leaflets, photographs. They scoured the country along the coast from Caloundra to Coolangatta. They came forward in the newspapers now and said, you know, they believed, the police said they believed that Marjorie had died after, quote, seeking medical treatment. And that was the discreet language of the day. Plainclothes cops then staked out doctors who were known to provide abortions. And it's like, well, they do this at the end of November. She's been missing for almost three weeks now. I'm not sure exactly what they hope to actually see because, you know, it had been, there'd been plenty of time to dispose of the body. Maybe they were hoping to find, to, to sort of get the gossip going around because there Could surely be. w- would have been. I mean, I know in Melbourne there was a really big ring of backyard abortions, horrible, horrible term, but, um, mm. you know, around about the same time and not everyone performing them were, was a doctor, by the way. Yeah, that's in fact, right. In fact, there was a lady with the last name Moran who was the grandmother of Jason and uh, Mark Moran who was actually very famous for doing them in Melbourne, not a doctor or a nurse. So maybe you'd think there'd be gossip in yeah. the right or wrong circles about it if there'd been a terrible, terrible accident, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. This is the thing as well. Like when, I guess, important, powerful men get someone pregnant and need to yeah. solve their problem. Because there's medical guys in her circle as well, you would think. That's right. So, yeah. and the fact that, you know, it's a, a lucrative, illegal trade means that there's, you know, a lot of potential for corruption. Um, in mid-December, a fisherman called Henry Gagan came forward to say that he had gone to the Caloundra holiday home of a guy called Dr. Albert Ross on the 12th of November. So this is the day after Marjorie had last been seen. This guy was a fisherman. He'd called at the home because he knew there were people there and maybe they wanted to buy some fish. The door opened and he swore the woman at the door was Marjorie. No. Yeah. So Caloundra is like... Now, maybe, I don't know, two hours up the road from Brisbane, you know, north of Brisbane's close. It's close, but it, yeah. again, would be remote and a great place to sort of lay low. Well, this guy swore black and blue that he'd seen her. He said to detectives, you need not look further afield than Caloundra as she is planted in the sand here somewhere. Oh, Now, no. the guy who investigated this claim was Detective Sergeant Frank Bischoff. And he later oh, became, God. yeah, exactly. Oh, no. So he later became the infamously corrupt Queensland Police Commissioner. He investigated. He said that Henry Gagan had actually seen Mrs. Ross, Dr. Ross's wife, but he didn't actually make any extensive efforts to establish their whereabouts, Dr. Ross and his wife, that weekend. Now, Dr. Albert Ross was well known to provide abortions on the sly. And Bischoff, by the way, was implicated in the murders of other women by the time, you know, he died, by when it all was said and done. So yep. he certainly had no conscience there. So Dr. Albert Ross had links to that politician that Marjorie was supposedly seeing, George Pollock, and he'd also supposedly taken referrals from the Premier's son. So this guy was enmeshed with the political establishment at this time. So if Marjorie had become pregnant and had said to somebody, uh, we need to sort this out, it's very likely she would have been referred to Dr. Albert Ross. In 1955, this guy would be up for uh, uh, on charges of you know, pr- providing illegal abortion. So he was doing it for an awfully long time. Anyway, they wrote that off as a dead end. 
and they just didn't find Marjorie. You know, they didn't find her officially. They actually found her 110 times because people would be swimming in the water and their hand would touch a coconut and they'd freak out and they'd, they'd call the police. Um, you know, there was a message in a bottle that turned up that you know, said, you know, I disposed of Marjorie's body. I was paid 50 quid for it, et cetera. Yeah, tell us about that. I, when I just I did a little Google, I couldn't stop myself. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to know too much about it because I wanted you to tell me. But I did see that, the message in the bottle, was, yeah. was represented as like the big tip-off many years later. Yeah, well, it's just uh, the, the bottle washed up at Southport in January of 1939. It was found so that's by- down on the Goldie. Yeah. Found by a couple of fishermen, and it said, would the person finding this bottle please inform the police that I received 50 pounds to dispose of the body of Miss Norval? She was dumped in the bay near Amity Point on 16 November 1938. It basically just said it was a hoax. I mean, by this time, they had 6,000 pages in their files. They stood five feet high, contained 3 million words. So, you know, while it had been slow to get off the ground in terms of publicity, it had created an avalanche of leads, and that can often be, you know, to the detriment of solving a case because there's just so much to, to wade through. But it also seems to me that, you know, the most likely leads, because of the political connections, weren't followed up. Now, here is the extraordinary thing. George Pollock, that Speaker of the House, that veteran politician, early 1939, was losing his mind. Like, this guy had had a gastrointestinal complaint earlier. And it had led to surgery, so he was often in a lot of pain. But his depression had become a suicidal derangement. And in March, he was also served with a writ of defamation by a young woman called Honor Sparks. Now, in the paper, it wasn't revealed what the writ was about, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. On the next day, he left a note saying, I think, I think this was to his daughter, darling, won't you pray that I won't have to endure this pain much longer? There is some, something pressing on my brain. On Friday, the 24th of March, at breakfast, burst into fits of hysterical laughter, then seemed to be okay, went to Parliament House, chatted to his daughter, made plans to have a walk with her after lunch, went into his office, got out a shotgun and shot himself in the head. So he left a note saying, a complete nervous and mental breakdown, cannot carry on, too much pain, George Pollock. And underneath was a postscript that read, my poor tortured brain Goodbye to my loved ones. Now, there was a journalist called Ken Blanche, and he did a lot of work on this story. He, he, he passed away a few years ago, and he wrote a, a little monograph called Marjorie Norville, The Girl a Railway Station Swallowed. And his examination of this suicide note says that the actual final phrase was loved one, not loved ones. So who was this loved one? Was it Marjorie? Had George Pollock actually impregnated her, sent her off to have an abortion, and then been part of the cover-up of her death. That is a theory. A week after he killed himself, that woman, Honor Sparks, who'd served a writ of defamation, went to Truth Newspapers to tell her story. And she said that she'd been in a relationship with George Pollock, that he'd sent her at one point to a private hospital to have a procedure. I mean, you can join those dots easily enough. And that the CIB and him had tried to actually have her committed, as in tried to shut her up. She said to Truth, do you know they tried to certify me as insane? They tried to say I was mad. Can you imagine anything more terrible than that? All sorts of attempts were made and policemen accompanied me home more than once. How humiliating. So this seems to indicate that George Pollock had some form in terms of affairs with younger women and then using his power and pol political connections to keep them quiet. 
So cut to 1942, there was a, a politician called Frank Barnes. His nickname was Bombshell because he wore a pith helmet, as you do in Queensland. Oh, my God. <laughs> Queensland. So he, um, oh. he asked pa- Parliament to change the law so they could have a coronial inquest without a body. The law was changed, and it began in May of 1943. They called about 20 witnesses, including the former Premier, his wife, uh, Mercia Doran, all of these people. Dr. Ross, the suspected abortionist, wasn't called because he'd been interned as a possible Japanese agent because, of, as you do, he was a leading proponent of jujitsu and judo. <laughs> he was, like, integral to forming the sport in Queensland. So, you know, he was interned. He couldn't give evidence. You know, maybe that was convenient. You know, James East was called. All of these men were called, all of them, to a man said they'd only been friends with Marjorie. They had no idea what had happened. So it seems extraordinary that, you know, Marjorie managed to get pregnant. It was like, you know, an immaculate conception. Unfortunately, Bombshell Barnes was a huge conspiracy theorist. He sort of railroaded the proceedings to say that Marjorie had actually been spirited away to California to stop her from blackmailing the Premier, well, now ex-Premier Forgan Smith. He refused to divulge his sources. Bombshell Barnes was fined and sent to jail for contempt. Then he came out and said, you know, actually, all right, well, it was a detective named Smith and a citizen named Jones who told me these things. And yeah, it was only hearsay. So he basically, Bombshell blew up the inquest <laughs> for his own stupid reasons, which meant that you know, they didn't try to actually get to the real truth of the matter as to, you know, so that's where it's at. Like, you know, and more than 80 years later, whenever they find human remains in Queensland, that's the, the first thing a lot of people think is, is this Marjorie? And you know, at some point she may be uncovered. Unfortunately, there's a, a list of women whose remains have never been found in that in, in southeast Queensland. You know, there's Sharon Phillips who who went missing in oh god, I don't know, late eighties, early nineties. So yeah, I, I didn't know about Marjorie, but now I realise yeah, there's just a list of, of mysteriously lost women. Yeah, it's a lot of them are the I guess victims of the illegal abortion procedures. Um, I never even thought of that. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of them went wrong, badly wrong. And then if that happened on your premises, yeah, you'd have to um, deal with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was a woman named Hannah Mitchell in Melbourne who from 1918 to 1928 was tried four times for murder <sighs> because of situations like this where she, you know women had gone to her clinic she was, you know, claimed to be a nurse. She actually wasn't. Uh, women had gone to her clinic and never been seen again, you know. And one of the cases, they found the woman's head oh, you know, and body in a sack in the Yarra. You would have thought it was a slam dunk for a conviction. It was really difficult to prove because, you know, they could say, well, she came here, nothing happened. She had a miscarriage while she was here and then she left. And, you know, it was on the onus of proof was on the prosecution to say that, you know, a procedure had been carried out. And I know um, forensic pathologists back in the day as well were under a lot of pressure to lie about, yeah, causes of death as well. Yep. So, you know, the, the, the backyard abortionists, many of them just continued. Women kept falling victim to them. And, you know, I guess ultimately the responsibility lay with the lawmakers who allowed this to go on. So, I mean, hideously, this is probably going to be, you know, more common now in the United States. What a timely story this is. 
And by the way, Frank Bischoff, I can't believe the, the, the tie-in. You know, it, it, it's one of those, it reminds me of how in Victoria or around Melbourne, you know, for, for so many years, all the same names pop up, you know, around every single crime, yep. every story. And around Queensland, these politicians and police, the same names pop up for decades. I need to give credit to the journalist, the late journalist, Ken Blanche. In his little monograph, he interviewed Bischoff at some point because Ken was a... Uh, prominent Brisbane, Queensland journalist. And, you know, decades later, Bischoff supposedly said that he believed Dr. Albert Ross had killed Marjorie inadvertently during an abortion and had covered it up, which is just, you know, even more horrible given that Bischoff was at the time the guy who didn't pursue that line of investigation. So it really is just sort of a, you know, I I do wonder if a man had been murdered in this case or even a a more prominent woman, whether, you know, they would have, justice would have been allowed not to be done. So yeah, some dark history there. And you know what it just was, it reminds me of so trusting and thinking that she was part of the inner circle. And it just makes me think, nah, don't ever let your guard down, babe. (laughs) Don't ever think, (laughs) don't ever think you're part of the club, babe. I, I think that's true. I mean, when you know, when it came down to it, no one was willing to risk any sort of scandal. So, yeah, when it, when she needed her powerful friends, you know, in life and then in death, they were covering their own butts. Thank you to our guest Michael Adams from Forgotten History, and thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.